Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, with FIFA World Cup two years away, we look at the cost to taxpayers as the renovation list grows for BC Place. And Ottawa launches a national dental program. We'll have the latest on how you can apply. Plus, a whole new game. From economics to politics, we look at the transformation of the business of hockey in Canada. And we ask if Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas song didn't exist, what would become the official song of the holidays? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. But first, let's talk health. Uh, BC's top doctor and health minister are encouraging uh, the public to get an updated COVID-19 and influenza vaccine as clinics and hospitals across the province uh, see an uptick in patients with respiratory um, uh, symptoms. While COVID-19 uh, infections, hospitalization and deaths have decreased since uh, the October peak, uh, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry said cases of influenza are also on the rise. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is BC's Health Minister, Adrian Dix. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, good afternoon, Jess. Good afternoon. Let's talk about uh, the issue number one. In regards to immunization itself, it looks like the public uh, have sort of uh, been listening and and, and are getting immunized. Well, I think uh, British Columbia is doing much better than all of the other provinces by a very significant margin, more than twice as successful a program and campaign for COVID-19 this fall, and almost the same for influenza than Ontario, which is a good comparison, I guess, for us. And so relative to everyone else, British Columbians are getting vaccinated, but we can get vaccinated more, I think. The health authority where most people, where the most people are vaccinated is in Island Health, against influenza, for example, mm-hmm. then Vancouver Coastal Health, then Interior Health, then Fraser Health, then Northern Health. So we would like to see more immunization everywhere. And it, just about everywhere, there are appointments available uh, all over British Columbia this week, to get, it, to get vaccinated, and this would be a good time to get vaccinated in advance of many of the holiday events, which are starting to occur, of course, already, but will continue to occur uh, through to the 25th and beyond, and then through to the 31st. So this is a good time to get vaccinated. It makes a lot of sense to do so. In BC, we started nine days before other provinces in Canada, and we've had more success in reaching people, but you can always do better, and uh, we clearly like to see more people get vaccinated in the coming two weeks. Uh, is is this partially just fatigue in regards to COVID, in regards to flu shots, that you're, you as collectively as a government, as, as uh, the health ministry fighting, is just fatigue, that people have been listening to the message of flu shots and COVID uh, constantly, that people are just tired? I, I think, uh, well, I can tell you that I'm a bit tired, uh, Jazz, <laughs> of, of the subject, of course, but, uh, but you know, um, this is going to be, this is a regular thing. And influenza, for example, which has been a regular thing for a long time, the need to have a high uptake of flu shots, particularly amongst those who are most vulnerable, which includes children, but mostly uh, uh, the elderly and those who are clinically vulnerable. That's always been true, and that will continue to be true as it will with COVID-19. So, yes, there's fatigue. In B.C., I think we're the outlier in Canada right now. We've done about, in this sort of season, uh, the same amount of flu and um, and COVID shots that we did last year combined, and uh, and that's 
okay, but, uh, but I think we can do better. And, uh, you know, it's not just a collective question. It's an individual question. It's a way to make your family safer, your, grandmother's, uh, your grandmother, your grandfather safer, uh, the people you care for safer. And you never know the people that you care for most, how vulnerable they might be to either COVID-19 or influenza. So this is something that can be done. It can be done easily. And the success of BC so far, I think, is related to our appointment booking system, to the text messages that everyone gets, and to the willingness of community pharmacy to really step up. And community pharmacy uh, and the BC Pharmacy Association in particular have just done a great job on this issue. Uh, to my understanding, we're continuing to see a high number of people uh, in hospitals. Why is that? Well, the number of people in hospital has been increased year over year over the last number of years, but particularly um, la- last fall coming out of that period of the pandemic, mm-hmm. remember January 22 and the, um, the impact that Omicron had on BC. And then as the pandemic, you know, to a degree faded in the public mind, especially, we've seen an increase in all aspects of care. Why is this? We have hundreds of thousands of more people in BC. We have the country's most successful economy in a general sense. And that's part of the reason. So we have to care for them. And that means more people but, and more jobs and more skills, but also more cases of diagnosed, uh, diagnosed heart disease and cancer and separated shoulders and all those other things. Secondly, we have an aging population. And thirdly, I think the pandemic had an, had an impact on both physical and mental health that was significant. People, in some cases, chose not to get treatment for things that they delayed and, uh, and deferred and uh, weren't as available to them. Uh, and so what we've seen this year, and we're seeing it again, is Today in hospital in BC, over 10,000 people in acute care hospitals. So what did we do? We increased the number of beds, the regular base beds in acute care hospital this fall to prepare to just over 9,900. And uh, we're expecting those numbers to increase uh, in the post-Christmas period. So we have to be prepared for that. So what you're seeing is a healthcare system that's delivering way more surgeries, way more diagnostic tests, way more primary care visits, way more ambulances. So the hospital, the healthcare system is producing dramatically more, but demand is up across the board, both for physical and mental health. So will we be, over Christmas, someone was, uh, I was just hearing through the grapevine, this will be the all-time record of British Columbians hospitalized ever? It, it might be. Um, we, we're not there yet. Uh, last year, um, on around January 6th, January 7th, we were at about 10,280 people. And so we're not at that point yet. But just as an example, on one day last week, December 5th, we were at 10,128. What happens typically is that there's an increase in hospitalizations coming out of the Christmas period. That may or may not happen this year, but if it does, we'll certainly have a record number of people in hospital. And that's why we're putting a record number of resources uh, to, to our acute care hospitals in response to that. A record number, we've added acute care beds, we're adding surgeries and other things. The other thing that's happening in the healthcare system is we are reducing uh, wait lists for surgery, and that means doing more surgeries. We've set records in numbers of surgeries in the last number of weeks that are um, breathtaking, really, uh, in when you consider the improvement, given that COVID has happened in the last three years. These are all-time records for healthcare in BC, and that means more people in hospital recovering from surgery and so on. But that's good news for people. That means they get to their surgery more quickly, and that does drive some of the acute care numbers as well. Minister, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Take care, Jess. I was reading an article where people um, 
that worked retail, some people literally would just walk off the sales floor and go to the <laughs> stock room and just to get away from that song. To get away from Miss Carrie. I had my song, uh, surprising exactly no one. Because, yeah, I worked, I've put in my time in retail. I think I have maybe, yeah, almost a decade of retail experience. And uh, my my go hide in the back song, and you, you'll know this one because um, you bog me with it all the time, yeah. is, is Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. I remove myself from the situation every time. I'm like, I can't listen to this again. I can't. It's about nothing. Every time I hear that synthesizer come up, I'm like, goodbye. I'm yeah. done. Thank you so yeah. much, Tim. It came Thank on the you radio. for playing it. it. It was on the radio. It was on the radio uh, last week as I was sort of moving through Highway 99. It pulled over, recorded it. <laughs> you did. And I, I got. Texted I was you. on my little staycation. I got a text from the host of the show that I work on. I was like, "What could he possibly need?" <laughs> and it was a video of the radio. <laughs> song on the radio. <laughs> the inside of your car. I was I, like, "Oh my word!" I couldn't resist. Every time I, I hear that song now, I think of you, which I, I can understand. It's our why. song now, Jazz. You just don't like that. It just it just bothers you that. Much. It does. I can't. I can't hang with it. But that's fine. You know what? I'm glad that something in this world puts you in mind of me, even if it is "Wonderful Christmas Time" by Paul McCartney. Right. Sign up to the Economist for in-depth, curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We're going to talk about the FIFA World Cup. Good afternoon, uh, Richard. Jazz, I'm going to tell you Mm -hmm. my favorite pre-Christmas song is by far the Hanukkah song by Adam Sandler. (laughs) And there are four versions of it, Jazz. Four? And it is for sure the greatest holiday song of them all. It is an amazing And pre-Christmas. Hanukkah is always pre-Christmas. It's a pre-Christmas song. You're absolutely right. I was actually just listening to it or watching it uh, last week. It was already out, so it was was a lot of fun. But there's four versions? Yeah, there are four versions updated with celebrities as they become more modern. So... Vancouver's Seth Rogen makes it, and so does Toronto's Drake in the fourth version. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the more contemporary celebrities are mentioned in the later years, oh, okay. rather than some less contemporary celebrities uh, in the first version. Ah, okay. Well, speaking of uh, new versions or old versions, let's talk <laughs> about uh, BC Plays for a second. As we all know, we'll be hosting FIFA's World Cup in 2026. Now, uh, at this point, Toronto and Vancouver, the two Vancouver, or sorry, Canadian cities that will be hosting the games. It's a joint bid by uh, U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Vancouver and Toronto share 10 games, so five games each, although there is talk of more games being added. Now, when the province said they're moving forward with it, uh, their general costs being discussed would be 240 to $260 million to host those five to six games here in Vancouver. Now, along the way, 
away. There was a guarantee of a grass playing field as well, some changes to the uh, venues and, and, and uh, training camps and that sort of thing. So, But the general uh, cost was about 240 to $260 million, a global audience. Everybody said that's wonderful. Uh, now, Richard, uh, the Vancouver Sun reports there was a request for a proposal for a construction manager for for BC Place, they want to add some, they want to make some changes to BC Place prior to uh, those five games. Walk me through what you're hearing. Yeah, so I've seen this RFP now, and what uh, is being prescribed here? They're looking for someone to oversee the construction, as you mentioned, and some of the things they're looking at for BC Place, and their requirements for the World Cup are additional VIP suites at BC Place a new uh, retail location in the main area and a lot of stadiums and baseball parks and arenas all over the world, including at uh, Rogers Arena, you have a team store. There's a requirement here to put a retail location at BC Place. One currently doesn't exist uh, to that extent. Uh, There are requirements around BC's Accessibility Act uh, to add extra elevators uh, to the facility. They must have more washrooms and improve food court concessions. How much all of that will cost is unclear. I just got a statement from the province. I requested more information knowing that you and I were going to have an opportunity to chat here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what they sent me, the only dollar figure attached to this jazz is the belief that it is going to bring in $1 billion to Vancouver's tourism economy hosting the World Cup, but no descriptor in terms of what they are expecting all of this to cost. Uh, We know that when renovations have previously been done at BC Place, they come in at a pretty hefty price tag. We had the major renos made for the 2010 games and then additional revenues made uh, for the Women's World Cup. So the last set of renovations back in 2011, uh, post-Olympics, were $514 million. Uh, Those satisfied some of the hosting requirements. The other thing that's important here that the province said is that they continue to have site checks with officials from FIFA. The province has not signed any guarantees with FIFA in terms of contract about what will be delivered. But with these site checks, they continue to say, oh, well, we need this, we need that. We know there's also going to have to be a replacement for the field. There's a requirement to have a grass field instead of a turf one for the World Cup. There actually has to be a second backup field as well. So when you add up all these things, the costs add up. The question is, who's on the hook, right? Billion Mm -hmm. dollars is great, but that's not going directly into the provincial coffers. The statement also mentions the expectation is the federal government will be a partner here as well to help provide additional funds. But again, how much? We know that the federal government will likely have to pay for some of these other costs, is the province going to be on the hook for the security costs associated with an event like this, which will be huge? So those should be big questions people ask. I think it's exciting FIFA's coming to Vancouver. But Premier Horgan was reluctant originally about the costs. Something turned in his brain around that. Uh, and now uh, British Columbians have the right to know what an event like this is going to cost before we start uh, spending all this money on improving the stadium, bringing grass, and making all those other changes that are needed to host a World Cup game. Yeah, I mean, we, we're invested now. So when I look at this list, uh, a VIP suites, I think, okay, well, maybe in the future that's more suites that they can be sold and rented out, sure. which means the you know the Pavco uh, can can make more revenue. BC Place can more make more revenue. Elevators uh, for accessibility, always a great thing. It is an older stadium. More washrooms, no one's going to complain about that. So some of these things, you know, they're not offensive 
expensive. It's not like you're replacing a roof and doing major engineering work, but you know, it's not. It's still very significant. I guess at the, at the end of the day, you got to ask ourselves if the cost is two hundred and forty to two sixty to host uh, those five or six games, and there may be more games as well because uh, FIFA's added twenty four extra games for the whole tournament. Um, the question is, where is this money coming from? Uh, do you think there's any reluctance in the, on the part of the NDP? Because initially, I remember I was in the in um, uh, in question period, and I brought up the issue when they initially said no, and I had gotten a tip, and I think the minister was quite shocked when we started asking <laughs> questions at that time. Uh, but they, they, as you said, they did change their mind. Yeah, she was shocked in the scrum afterward too. You caught her off guard with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the province is fully invested in this now. Uh, there has been a huge push from the tourism sector. Uh, there was a huge push internally led by ministers uh, Mike Farnworth and Rob Fleming, noted soccer fans, about the value of having an event like this in Vancouver. Uh, it continues to put Vancouver on the list as you know, world leaders in hosting international sporting events. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wouldn't be on that list if we weren't a mem- one of the, the host uh, cities for a World Cup in North America. So all of that is really important for Vancouver. But there's also a piece of accountability here. Like, where does the money come from? Pavco is a provincial entity. Most of these other venues uh, that will be hosting World Cup games are owned by billionaires who also own the local sports teams. So when you're talking about the big football stadiums uh, and Roger and, and BMO Place in Toronto, I think BMO Place actually is partially the provincial government. So let's put that to the side. But when you talk about these big stadiums in the U.S., those are owned by billionaires. So when they make the changes, they make them with their bottom line being considered because the more that they put in, the more they want to bring back in revenues, and they can often do so with their NFL team or their major league soccer team or whoever else or their tenants' concerts and things like that. The province is a different situation. They have the Lions, not a huge revenue generator, Yes, big concerts can come through BC Place, but those are only a handful a year. So there is a challenge, obviously, with revenues. Whitecaps, too. Again, revenues are a challenge. So where is that balance in terms of spending to draw tourism, to bring the best in the world, to celebrate soccer, to create an incredible atmosphere, while also ensuring that these are worthwhile investments to protect the taxpayer? I think there's a balance to be had there. I think, again, it's exciting. The World Cup is coming. But you have to strike that balance around accountability. I think providing the numbers to British Columbia as soon as you can about what this will cost will be prudent for the government rather than to catch people off guard once all the work is done. We are speaking to Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. We're talking about uh, an RFP put out by a BC Place. They're looking for uh, an um, a construction manager uh, to manage um, basically some uh, changes to BC Place. Uh, They want to, uh, I guess, renovations to food court washrooms, a banquet room, dressing rooms, an Edgewater lounge, the addition of merchandise store, premium entrance, uh, connecting the entrance between BC Place and the Park Hotel. Wow. Uh, And casino, of course. So uh, they want a manager uh, that has overseen at least one project worth more than $50 million. Uh, The original estimates for the FIFA World Cup here in Vancouver was somewhere between 240 to 260 million dollars with a guarantee that there would be a grass playing surface uh, at BC Place as well uh, among many other things uh, and people are wondering is this just a blank check for FIFA because as you know these organizations they come in and they always demand more and more give us a call on the open line 604-280-9898 let's go to George in Nanaimo hi George have a good day hi George can you hear us yeah hi Jazz. um it just seems to me 
every time we host these big events, and it all started with Expo 86, everybody's saying we want to be a world-class city and show ourselves to the world. The bottom line is that was the beginning of us becoming unaffordable, and we've never looked back. As we continue to host these things, life just gets more and more expensive for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Well, the rich guys enjoy all the benefits of hosting the big event. Yeah. They make all the money, we get stuck with the bill. George raises a very good point uh, in regards to just inviting the world. The problem is when you invite the world, the world arrives and it comes and stays and yeah. buys properties. And that is that is an ongoing issue in this city, and, and you can't get away from that. Yeah, absolutely. And as people see the splendor of Vancouver, they want to come here. And that's part of the balance is that you attract people, they stay, uh, pressure on uh, things like schools and housing and health care. And all of that uh, makes life a little bit more unaffordable. So there is a balance there to play when you get into this realm of being a world-class sports hosting city. Yeah, I mean, and look at the story that you're working over tonight's news hour that I was just talking to Chris Galis with. A pregnant woman is facing a $600 rent hike when her baby is born or uh, will receive a 10-day eviction notice just because one more person has been added to the household. Can you believe that? Um, so that's part of the challenge. I mean, I, I mean, it, BC Place didn't cause that problem, uh, and it's a long-term um, issue of supply that we didn't address for many years. Uh, but that's what you get when you invite the world as well. Uh, let's go to Carrie in Surrey. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Um, um, I think spend the money, invest in this province, invest in this city, uh, we've got to stop being no fun Vancouver. I've had mm-hmm. it with that label. Mm-hmm. And while you're at it, if you can ask that manager to fix the, fix the speakers, because I've got tickets to see the Rolling Stones in July. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Gary. I mean, there is one thing to be said with the, with that perspective is that we don't have billionaires that will build a 60,000-seat stadium unless you have like an NFL here or Major League Baseball. So the provincial government has always you know, had paid for BC Place. And it's still actually cheaper to upgrade it and repair and redo the roof the way the under the BC Liberals they did before the uh, Olympics. It's still cheaper to do that. And then we should be investing in this because if we without it, we wouldn't have a stadium. Yeah, I, I spent the summer jazz touring the states going to baseball stadiums. And there are some amazing stadiums and there are some not-so-incredible stadiums. And the BC Place experience is close to stacking up. It still has those massive caverns that exist Uh, to go between sections. There are still some challenges with the concourse, but as we invest more, in essence, the bones are there. Yes, it's a little bit older of a stadium, but they've done a really nice job at trying to upgrade it through the Olympics and the Women's World Cup. So we have a pretty good thing there to build on. So, you know, investing in that is probably pretty wise to ensure that the Rolling Stones come, Taylor Swift comes, and these other tours, as well as big events like this. So, Kerry makes a good point. We want to get rid of that moniker of a no-fun city, and you do that by hosting big events and welcoming the world to come celebrate your city. Yeah, absolutely. Richard, thank you. My pleasure as always, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
joined by Jerry Mayer Judson, our contributor, and we're also joined by CKW technical producer, Talia Miller. Jerry, Talia, welcome. Hello. Hello. Uh, this uh, conversation uh, actually uh, uh, focuses on, a, uh, uh, I guess, a talk we were having earlier today uh, and a text we received. Now, it's, in, it's, it's similar to um, an article I was reading a couple of days ago, which showed, according to WorkSafe BC, uh, data from, from that organization shows that violent acts have steadily increased in the retail sector. Not just violent acts, but just verbal harassment, uh, people just not being nice. Uh, and then it escalates from there. Uh, and uh, Talia, you work part-time at a tea shop. I think we won't mention the name, but you work at a tea shop, I right? do. How long have you been there? Oh, actually over a year now. Over a year. So mm-hmm. you enjoy it generally? I do. You enjoy it. So now, um, what happened today, <laughs> as I was working away, uh, Stephen, our producer, uh, was uh, playing a video that you sent of yourself. I think you you took a, uh, it was a video of yourself. It was a Snapchat. It was, it was a, a vlog. Snapchat. It was a vlog. A vlog from the friends. A long form <laughs> Snapchat that now, I also received. <laughs> you were at the said retail spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were in, was it the back room or a stock room? Yeah, I was hiding in the back. You were hiding from a customer. Mm-hmm. You were hiding from a customer. Uh, and this customer wasn't very nice. So uh, before we get into the customer's specific um, uh, challenges, uh, let's play your response to this customer. Let's take a listen. I literally just fought a customer. So it's the same bitch that like, comes in and she's like, I want a nice tea. But she's so effing picky and she's so rude about it. And she's a germaphobe one of the girls i was helping her was like trying to be like so nice and kind and then she printed out her receipt and she's like oh here's your receipt and she said i said it's fine it said it so rudely so she was just like already like a little frazzled like just washes her hands with like some water and starts like going to make her drink and then she's like can you please wash your hands like with soap and everything which is like sure fine and then comes over to me and it's like i want someone else to make my tea because she didn't wash her hands and i need to ensure that there's no germs in it and I was like, you know, there's like not a hundred percent chance that like germs aren't gonna be in anything. There's no hundred percent guarantee in anything in life. That's just the game we play. And I was like, well, she's more than capable. She's washed her hands so she can make your drink. She's like, but can you ensure me that like it's not gonna have? And I'm like, no one's like scooping the tea with their hands. I was just like, no, she's gonna make your tea again. Like she's washed her hands. Like we all know it's procedure. Sometimes we forget. It's just human error. And she was just like, not like. Every single person here does not like serving her because she's that rude and that intimidating. COVID affected a lot of people. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt that she's a serious germaphobe. The fact that she comes in every single f***ing time and is so rude to people, I can't. Your tea goes into boiling hot f***ing water for it to steep. So it's going to f***ing kill anything that's in there. Can you tell I was a bit fired oh, wow. up? I was just overhearing that and I go, what is going on? And so this is a customer who was a regular? Yeah, she's become a regular recently. And it's just one incident after the other. Like, you know, Jess, I've been working in retail for a while now. Yeah. And usually you can figure out what they like, you know, to help the transaction go easier for you and for them. Yeah. But there's just no winning with her. It doesn't matter who helps her or like who it is and what we can do. It's just every single transaction just causes someone on the staff team to like be upset afterwards. So there's a, are they just demanding or there's just a condescension from this? Both. Both. Unfortunately, both. Have you seen an increase in um, just poor treatment uh, by, uh, by customers towards retail staff? Do you see that? 
You know what? I would say last year for sure I saw a lot of it when mm-hmm. it was especially like the busier season. I think as Christmas creeps closer, the like the rage seems to also like end up being a lot more than what it normally is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everyone's stressed, everyone's wanting to like get what they need to do and get everything, which I get it, but there I don't think there's any reason to take it out on the person that's serving you if they've done nothing wrong and they're just trying to do their best to help you. So they just, this particular woman just comes in and she's just very demanding and condescending. Right off the top too. Right off the top. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For for Tina, jump in here. You've worked in retail for many years as well. Oh, you betcha. And I'm just curious in the years that you've worked retail, what's it been like? Has has there been a progressive decline or people are the same? Um... Even as even as a consumer, I too, like as a customer, I do. I judge the way that other customers treat the staff. I think that's an mm-hmm. inexorable thing that, that happens whenever you've been a previous retail employee or a current retail employee. Mm-hmm. I think this time of year is rough. This time of year is very brutal for everyone is stressed. Everyone feels like they don't maybe have enough money. Everyone Everyone's on edge. Mm-hmm. And now we're also not really used to being in large crowds anymore. It's everyone. It's 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 kind of brand new. So I think there is something to that. Can I also say my favorite part of the Snapchat is because you're angrily bobbing your head and you're wearing this little jingle bell headband. So she's angrily jingling while she's uh, ranting about this customer. Angry elf. I was trying to be festive and it was ruined today. But I I love the fact that you had to leave the floor space, go to the stock room and just rant. And like listen to this today. Just rant on the video. That's how mad I was. And again, she's not a first time offender. So it was just automatically. It would be different if it was not a regular Ab- abs- thing. It would totally be different if it she wasn't like a first blast. time. Yeah, but I also find it's there's um, uh, people think that they have a right to 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 sort of go after retail employees, uh, fast food employees. You see a lot of abuse of fast food employees as well. A lot of it. Oh, hundred percent. I even when I was uh, back in Alberta when I was a bud tender, the abuse that I took as a bud tender, we had to ban so many people really? from ever coming in our store again. Because, a bud tender? Yes, that's what we call it. When I worked at a cannabis store, well, those folks are supposed to be relaxed. Well, that, okay, that's the thing. They're, we see them in their least relaxed state because they are dry. <laughs> that's it. And that's the thing. It's like you don't understand. I'm the person between you and a chill time, and I think you need to be a little chiller they to me, be my friend. Way nicer to you. you know what I'm or the person between them and their tea that day. Mm-hmm. They should be nicer. So, what are you going to do with this, Karen? Oh, I don't know. Like management's aware that this is becoming an issue. And I've actually told my team that if I'm working with them and they don't want to deal with her, I will. Yeah. Ban her. Ban her. Ban oh, her. Could you do that? I, I wish I had the power to, wow. but I think it might get to that point. At, like it's like I said, it's been multiple times now. It's We're getting to the point where it's been months. So I think that well, something needs if, to... If you're in the stockroom venting... With profanity, sending it to us here, <laughs> it's a problem. You're like a very nice human being. Thank you for saying that. And uh, so someone to get you to that point really tells you it's more a commentary on them than you, of course. Oh, so. well, thank you so 100%, much. 100%. <laughs> I've heard about this woman before as well. <laughs> really? I, I'm familiar with her because I've heard stories. Well. And you guys would keep me in check if I was the problem. It's oh, yeah, me. we would do that. Oh, Hi. Hi. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> 
While hockey is still Canada's most popular spectator sport, yet many fans question how organized hockey has evolved from its origins as they watch the NHL expand ever deeper into non-traditional markets in the United States, taking the best young Canadian talent and leaving major Canadian markets in Quebec, the Maritimes and the Prairies in the cold. Minor hockey, once the pride of smaller communities, now serves as a corporate feeder system for the NHL, often shipping players as young as 14, far away from their homes and families on short notice. Regina-born Neil Longley is currently the Director of Business at Nevada State University in Las Vegas. In his new book, A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics and the Transformation of the Business of Hockey in Canada, he contrasts the current state of the game with the way it was before the expansion era when hockey teams were nurtured and supported at the community level. Neil, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jess. Glad to be here. Uh, now, uh, you were born in Saskatchewan. Uh, you've uh, followed hockey as, as, as a young man and throughout your life. What convinced you to write this book now? Well, I think there was a, a couple of things. One is that over time, I began to see that the game that I followed as a kid looked very different, not just on the ice, but really in, in terms of the business and economic aspects of it. And professionally, I went on to become an economist and decided that I was going to study um, the economics of professional sport leagues as one of my uh, main focuses, and particularly emphasis on hockey. So for me, it was sort of uh, combining here work with pleasure. During that time, though, in looking at, at the NHL, I really started to see that a lot of these changes over the past half century in many ways are very parallel with the changes, the underlying changes that have gone on in Canada itself. So that for me was, was fairly fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, and when you say those underlying changes to Canada, are those economic? Are they demographics? What do you mean by that? Certainly, certainly much of both. I think demographically we saw the, the, the movement west. We saw the west in general become a much more major player. Uh, certainly... Uh, Alberta, and I talk in the book about the, the Battle of Alberta in the 80s and how the, the, the rise of the New West and the oil producers uh, of Alberta and the Peter Lougheed government were sort of pushing back at the east. Uh, British Columbia, uh, a massive expansion in population over the last 50, 60 years. Um, you know, at one point, and, and I guess I was intrigued by this, my, my own, as you say, my own whole province of Saskatchewan was actually in the 40s the third largest by population province in Canada, after only Quebec and Ontario, and has, of course, since been long surpassed. So I think that was definitely part of it. I think we've seen on the business side, uh, you know, freer markets, uh, freer movement of goods and services, and with that, I think we've also seen an increasing role, and in, in some might say domination, of U.S.-based franchises within the uh, the National Hockey League. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, focus just on something. Just uh, there's a couple of issues to focus on here, but let's focus a little bit on the economic factors. Um, what kind of changes on the economic side are you seeing in, in the professional ranks for that, for that matter, even in the minor league ranks in places like British Columbia? Right. I think on the professional side, you know, the the game of hockey at the NHL level has always been a business. You know, that, that's not new. But I think over the last 30 years or so, particularly in the, the Gary Bettman era um, of the NHL when he became commissioner, the, the changes, 
Gary Bettman's view, he came from the NBA, was very much to, 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 to copy, the, copy the NBA model. And this part of this meant having a national footprint in the United States and really being in every top television market in, in, in that country. Mm-hmm. And I think so, therefore, you know, we, we saw some of those biases move that way in terms of um, franchises and uh, U.S. cities that may not have a strong tradition of hockey and hockey following um, but bring the population, you know, and, and the idea that capturing even a small percentage of the market in a very large market um, may be better than capturing a large percentage of the market in, in, in a small market. So that, that was definitely, I think, something that we've seen change over the last 30 years. And there's been other changes. Well, technology, uh, the, the major U.S.-based franchises in the early 90s started to become economically much Stronger than their most of their Canadian counterparts. The rise of digital television caused the uh, the local TV revenues in the uh, some of the major U.S. markets to just explode. So we went from an era where it was largely a gate-driven league to one where the size of the market you were in from a from a local TV perspective became a very dominating factor. Uh, I think on, on on the more minor league level, I, I have a I have a chapter in the book on. Uh, junior hockey, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, you know, many uh, uh, Western Hockey League franchises in British Columbia, and its evolution has in some way mirrored the NHL, and, and I talk in the book about how um, before the draft got uh, instituted in the NHL in the late 60s, that essentially NHL clubs controlled the, uh, the entire Canadian amateur hockey system, and that meant sponsoring teams uh, across the country, that ended when the when the draft started. But when we when we saw the junior leagues and the junior operators not kind of be freed from direct control by the NHL, we saw those leagues, uh, to me, interestingly formed as almost mini NHL, mm-hmm. uh, where they held their own drafts. They limited supply of franchise. I talk in the book about how monopoly leagues like the NHL, uh, one of their lifeblood stuff to higher revenues is to limit supply of their franchises to make them more valuable. You know, so we've seen that extend down to junior hockey as well. Um, so I think for me, many, many parallels on the economic and business side of major junior hockey uh, with the National Hockey League. Um, I grew up in a small town in the interior here in British Columbia called Williams Lake. It's about six hours north of Vancouver here. And, uh, you know, that era of the 70s and 80s, um, you know, life was around the local hockey arena and your local hockey team. Um, are we losing it out with the amount of European players and American players uh, in, in the NHL? And yes, there's lots of Canadians that still play in the NHL. Um, are we seeing less, and maybe it's just me, are we seeing less of small-town Canada represented in the NHL? Or, or is this just my perception? No, I think Jeff, we're definitely seeing less. And um, I, 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 hockey, very much through the '40s, '50s, even into the '60s, many of those players, if not most of them, came from rural areas. There wasn't a lot from British Columbia at the time. That's that's changed now, but at that time it was mainly Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And early '50s, they accounted for about 40% of the players in the NHL and made up about 12% of the country's population. So. Hugely overrepresented. Northern Ontario mining towns, 
uh, forestry towns, same kind of thing. You had the Tim Hortons and so on, who all grew up in northern Ontario. So, um, yeah, and, and you go back uh, and, you know, you, you look at, um, you know, the Watson brothers back in the 70s, and they were, um, you know, they were very predominant with the Philadelphia Flyers. So it was a small-town game. So I think part of what has happened definitely is the influx of, of Europeans and I think, yeah, more, even more important in recent eras is, is the Americans. Um, the game and the, the development of the game has changed. It's, it's migrated from rural bases into big cities. There's more resources. There's higher levels of competition. Uh, you know, training has become much more technologically sophisticated. So I think there's so many factors here that have caused that game and the roots of the game to really move away from sort of small town Canada. Yeah. One of the other issues, um, and as I was reading the book was, um, you know, there was always at one time, and perhaps even you, you hear a little bit of it even today, less so uh, certainly a resistance to European players um, uh, playing in the NHL. So when Canadians today talk about, um, you know, hockey in sort of non-traditional markets. As I said, we've had resistance to even Europeans at one time. Uh, do you think that's more nostalgia? And, 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 and do you think we may be wrong in the case of hockey, you know, will do just fine in non-traditional markets over the long term? Right. I, I, you know, I think two parts to that. I think there, there definitely over time was resistance to the European players, particularly, you know, when they first started migrating to North America, uh, you're right. I think we hear much less of that now. And I think, I think for hockey fans in Canada, um, I would say that they're, they're less bothered by that than that second part where we're seeing teams placed in non-traditional, usually U.S. markets. Uh, and for many Canadians, I think they see that at the expense of other possible markets in Canada, you know, the Quebec cities, the Hamiltons, and, um, you know, even stretching at the Saskatoons kind of thing. And, and I think that's where some of the dissatisfaction comes into play kind of in the modern era. You know, why is that happening? And for me, uh, it kind of goes back to the fact that, you know, the NHL really is a collection of the owners of the 32 existing clubs. And for them, they're going to make expansion moves. They're going to locate franchises in places where they can make the most, the, the most revenue. And going along with that, I think, is, again, this idea that, inherently there's a limitation of supply of franchises. So it's not a Quebec City and a Houston, Texas question. It may turn out to be a Quebec City or a Houston, Texas. And I think in many cases in the modern era, you know, the Quebec cities of this world are, are probably going to lose that, um, you know, that battle. Uh, so I think that is what, what has occurred. I, you know, currently for the last five years, I lived in Las Vegas, and this is about as non-traditional a market as you can get, and and the the Golden Knights here have done a fantastic job of marketing their product to a uh, a hockey to a base of fans that really do not have much of a history with hockey, but it's a different game here. It's a different game, I think, in a lot of non traditional U.S. markets where the fans see the game very differently. Um, I lived in in Massachusetts for 15 years, and even there, where hockey has a much longer t- tradition. Mm-hmm. Fans there see the game differently than Canadians do. It's, it's a business. It's entertainment only. I think in Canada, we see it as being a lot more than that. 
Can, can you ever see a, 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 another NHL team in the U.S., sorry, in Canada, uh, based on what we've been watching the last 20 years, 25 years, would there ever be a, another team in Canada, an expansion team? I, I don't think you, you ever say it could never happen, but I think it, it, the probability of that happening, particularly in the medium term, the near to medium term, is, is probably fairly low. Um, you know, Quebec City has been talked about a lot. Uh, they have the arena in place, but it's still a relatively small market, um, certainly based on population. So I, I think, you know, and, and, and eventually the, um, the, era, the Gary Bettman era will, will change in the NHL. And it's unclear how much, you know, his per- personal vision has driven some of these decisions. But I think we will probably see a little different perspective. But, yeah, Jess, I, I mean, I have a hard time envisioning anywhere in the near future that we're going to see much of a change there. Now, recently I was talking to a, a friend of mine and uh, his son um, is drafted to play in the WHL. We got to talking a little bit about the minor league system, junior hockey as well. And I am always hesitant to talk to parents sometimes because you hear complaints pretty quickly once you start that conversation. Um, right. In, in your mind, uh, how do you think we fixed the system uh, so that, you know, there is, um, you know, perhaps a better understanding of what the par- players' needs are and making sure these players, whether they play professionally or end up doing other things, that they're prepared for life. What kind of things do you think we need right. to be doing in the minor league system uh, to make it a bit more equitable and fair and ultimately making sure these young players uh, have different avenues to succeed in life if it isn't hockey? I think that's a great question. It's a very difficult question to answer because it is is so um, entwined with, with the history of junior hockey, which has always, at some level or another, um, place these these boys and young men at disadvantages i mean even going back 50 60 years i think in the modern era one of the things we have to recognize is the is the you know for example the western hockey league uh is an independent entity and we have private owners of many if not most of the franchises and the days when uh junior hockey clubs uh, were an extension of the amateur hockey systems in each of these um, cities and towns in canada you know that ends up back you know, over 40 years ago. So that, I think that's what people remember or think about is the roots of junior hockey. And it is a separate entity. So I think it's going to be very difficult to get uh, a private entity, you know, Western Hockey League, and, and it's, you know, largely privately owned clubs uh, to make change. And uh, one of the things I raise in the book is, is, the, uh, uh, is the draft system in junior hockey. And, you know, so you've got a, uh, you've got a Connor Bedard from, North Vancouver, mm-hmm. uh, being drafted by my hometown team, the Regina Pats, and that is a uh, that's a that's a big move. That's that's um, you know, and and for a player of his stature, uh, it was going to work for him anyway. But I think for a lot of boys and young men, um, those kinds of moves are uh, potentially. Uh, you know, we, we, I think we have to really question whether that's in in the interest of young men, particularly men under the age or boys under the age of 18. Uh, it's, it's hard to fix. I think, I think, um, I think part of that is, is, uh, is what it is now. Uh, someone would have to, as a third party else, would have to come in and kind of break up the, uh, you know, the private leagues. And I'm not envisioning anyone 
doing that in the near future. So that that that, that to me is, is is certainly a concern as to where we're at in the modern era. Maybe one of the biggest concerns um, is is that. But it's junior hockey has been they talk in the book. Junior hockey has been criticized decade through decade through decade, um, and we haven't seen any material change. Like, I guess I'm pessimistic about your question <laughs> in terms of how things might change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil, we've got a few more minutes. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, one of the things that you, you brought up um, in our conversation, which is more and more uh, uh, sort of draftees coming out of major urban centers, less so from small-town Canada for a variety of factors. This is very specific to Vancouver, uh, and I know Toronto, the GTA area, has sent many and continues to send many players um, uh, to the NHL. Uh, I know we have Connor Bedard out of Vancouver here, latest sensation, and we've had many others come out of the city. When I look at Vancouver, I also see a city that is a very expensive city to live in, number one, one of the most expensive in the world. Um, You have very high land costs here as well because we're surrounded by water, uh, mountains, and the border which means it's very difficult to build arenas even. And then the general cost of hockey, uh, it, it, it doesn't go down for, for, for your average parent. Do you worry at all uh, about cities like Vancouver over the longer term where, where the game itself is accessible to a narrower and narrower class of society uh, rather than it being available 50 years ago, 35 years ago to much more people, particularly small-town Canada, that I would think, over the long term, that's also one of the challenges hockey has before it, is just the entry point to play for kids. It's exactly right. And I think that's, uh, you know, the whole cost issue you raise, whether it's costs of, of, of living in cities like Vancouver, building arenas, it's also costly for parents in terms of the development process and having... Uh, the young players go to the right camps, the right places. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, development from a from a, a physical fitness perspective, training methods. So this has become extremely costly. And I think gone are the days when when you know uh, children could be uh, sort of thrown out onto an ice rink and 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 kind of play as they may and, and some develop into stars some don't and i know again from from my roots in uh, in saskatchewan um you know how how players develop in past eras are, are nothing like they they do today i mean i think vancouver has the advantage of it is a um, a highly populated urban area but it also has some disadvantages as you mentioned in terms of cost issues and, and 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 that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's uh, uh, and I, I can I can attest that Saskatchewan still has the advantage of uh, kids can still play outdoors in January. Yeah. Um, so that is true. You can Vancouver. Yeah, that is true. The entry point for uh, you know sports like basketball are much cheaper. You pair of sneakers and a and a ball, and you exactly. can go. But uh, anybody, any hockey parent will tell you about those costs. Many years ago, I was posted abroad as a reporter, and I, I was uh, one of my favorite stories I ever covered was when I was living in India. Uh, for um, the highest altitude hockey is played in in, in northern India in in, in Kashmir and. Uh, along the Himalaya Plateau there, mm-hmm. 12,000 feet above sea level. And it was wonderful watching Canadians play. They go every year to play. Uh, and it was very unique. And But, you know, it's never going to be a market for the NHL. Uh, but it was wonderful to see that this amazing uh, game played in so many different parts of the world. 
I look at NBA's expansion. Um, you know, it's Las Vegas and Seattle next. There's also talk, however, of um, Mexico City potentially one day. And it is an accessible sport. They're pushing to China when I live there. You can see they're pushed now into India as well. It's an accessible sport. Hockey has a tougher time. Do you see hockey expanding beyond its uh, core sort of North American roots, uh, even if it is a Sun Belt? Do you see one day perhaps a European team joining the league uh, in some way? Or do you think it'll be a sport that does very well in North America, but mostly North America? I, I think at this point, Jazz, I would have to say it's still largely going to be a North American sport. I think you know, the entry point, the, the obvious entry point would be in Europe. And even Europe, as, as we know, uh, encompasses a lot of territory. In many of those places, um, there is no real interest in hockey. So I think you're looking you know, at, at um, the Czech Republic, you're looking at Sweden, Finland, and so on. You're looking uh, at Russia, but we now know what's, what's, what's happening there. So I mean, these are these are kind of the 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 places. The I, I wouldn't call it a niche game, but it certainly doesn't have that broad appeal. I spent quite a bit of time uh, in Germany uh, oh. working with colleagues, and you know, hockey has a presence there, but it's 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 down the list. It's it's not uh, basketball. I think is is is, is more popular. Than certainly, soccer. What's there? It has a following, but it's not like the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. uh, not like Sweden. So, and I think one of the things uh, from an NHL expansion perspective, um, teams have to be located in cities where there is uh, enough wealth and money to go around to support a team on the level that the NHL uh, would expect. And that isn't necessarily always true in some of the potential rabid hockey markets in Europe. So we have to have that interest in hockey that goes along with uh, enough consumer spending wealth to be able to support, uh, you know, season after season at an NHL club. Uh, my final question to you, uh, you currently live in Las Vegas, uh, a home of a Stanley Cup champion, while, he, us, the, the, while the rest of us here in Vancouver are still hoping and praying one day uh, to see a Stanley Cup here. Any advice you give our city? Well, I will say that um, I was living in the Boston area back in 2011, and uh, you know the Canucks probably should have won the Stanley Cup that year. And I, I did kind of feel bad for them. I wasn't particularly connected to the Bruins. Uh, hopefully, uh, they will get back. What I will say from an economics perspective, Jazz, is I think since 2005, since the NHL implemented the hard salary cap, Canadian franchises do have more potential to, you know, to win it all. And I think there are still some advantages to large market U.S.-based clubs, even with a salary cap. But I think the, the, the playing field has been leveled somewhat. And, you know, as we well know, in the Stanley Cup playoffs, um, you know, you have to win 16 games, and sometimes it's who's hot at the right time and who has uh, the hot goalie. And I'm not sure the Golden Knights uh, – we're necessarily the best team in the NHL last year, but but they did it at the time they needed to. So I think I think we will see a Canadian team win the Stanley Cup. Um, when I guess is, is is another question, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if one broke through here in the next let's say five years. We don't know who that's going to be. Could be the Canucks. Fingers crossed, that's for sure. Neil, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Josh. 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.